to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and I just want to thank everyone who supported the podcast and gave us a listen. I want to shout out Dan Schrader for being one of our first listeners. I hope you're enjoying this on, on your mail route. Miss Sandy Souza went ahead and installed the Podbean app on her cell phone just so she could get notifications of new episodes. And that sole listener we have over there in Japan. I don't know who you are, but I really appreciate the support. We just want to thank everyone for listening to us. And if you really want to show your support, give us five stars on whatever platform you listen to us on. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, whatever it is, we appreciate it. We really need that rating in order to help us move up in those ratings pages. And also, if you really want to show our support, why don't you go over to our patron page at patron.podbean.com slash psychocrime. I'm going to put the link down below and throw us a few dollars so that I can keep my cat and cat food and grow the podcast. Let's jump into this week's episode. It's about child rehoming. This is the practice of taking a child or children that you have adopted and giving them to other people. Now, I don't mean relatives or treatment programs. I mean strangers. Now to the average person, this is unthinkable. Given everything that adoptive parents go through just to get approved for adoption, it's unimaginable that they would give their children to strangers. Most parents cite behavioral issues as the reason that they give these children up. Some of these issues are undisclosed, as happens many times in international adoptions, and some they are very well aware of, like in this week's case. But first, we're going to try and understand some of the psychology behind adoption, because when you think of adoption, you think of people who are desperate to have children, since they can't have biological children. Now, statistics show that nearly one in 10 couples has fertility problems. Fertility issues can be deeply personal and for some people even traumatic. There's an intense sense of shame and inadequacy that can overwhelm people and threaten someone's sense of femininity or masculinity. It also comes with anger and jealousy. Emotions of anger can be targeted against other couples that do have children. And these feelings of jealousy can drive couples away from friends and family and lead to actual isolation. There's also a sense of guilt. People tend to blame themselves, trying to figure out what they did wrong in order to deserve this. Some people blame themselves for putting off the decision to have a child for too long. Others regret not asking for medical help sooner. Several women regret decisions that they made in their past, things that they believe contributed to the situation. There's also fear and insecurity. Many people are afraid that they're going to be isolated socially, afraid that they're gonna grow old alone with no one to take care of them. And then there's the very real fear of being abandoned by your partner because you can't provide them with a child. There's also a very intense sense of grief that can lead to depression. The occurrences of depressive episodes from people who have fertility issues are extremely well documented by researchers. Now, author Peg Streep interviewed daughters of cold and unloving mothers for nearly a decade and kept coming across the same question. Why have children? 
After talking to some of the mothers, she found six reasons over and over again. One, to have someone who loves you. I know it's crazy. You have kids so that you can love them. But time and time again, women admitted that they just wanted someone who loved them unconditionally. These tended to be younger mothers. And this is problematic as the child becomes what is known as emotional first aid being responsible for the emotional well-being of their mother. Two, because someone expects you to. Yes, it sounds crazy that even in this day and age, when people admit they don't want to have children, there's pushback from people around them. Some people simply don't feel they have the emotional depth to be a parent, admitting how selfish they are. Some just don't have the financial means to properly support a child. But even with these admissions, people still call them selfish for choosing not to be a parent, which is really bizarre in this day and age of people constantly judging someone, saying, if you can't afford it, why did you have a child? If you don't want to take care of them, why did you have a child? Same people who see these type of things then badger the people who admit they can't properly care for a child and choose not to have them, trying to get them to change their mind and have a child anyway. Many children who are born in these type of scenarios admit that their physical needs such as food, clothing, and housing are met, but their emotional needs go almost entirely ignored. Third, to fit in. Yes, even as adults, we want to fit in. We want to be accepted by your friends. Now, when your friends and and family are almost all married and have children, it make you feel isolated. So there's a fear that you're going to be left behind or be a third wheel without a child. Many people even stated that they were told it just wasn't normal not to have children. This can cause a parent to begin to resent their children as peer groups age and grow apart. Four, to give your life purpose. We all realize that you should be the only person who finds purpose in your life, that no one person should be responsible to fill a void that you seem to think that you have. This is dangerous as it can become something known as enmeshment, which involves denying the child the room they need to become themselves and totally ignoring their emotional boundaries. A child's job is not to make your life look or feel better than it is. Fit, to establish your legacy. Your legacy should be something you've established based on your actions and deeds in your life. Mothers who are concerned with legacy see children as extensions of themselves and, as reported by many of these children, put enormous amounts of pressure on them to reflect well on them. In this scenario, what the children want and what they feel and think are largely ignored. Last but not least, to keep your marriage together or to get someone to marry in the first place. Obviously, this is dangerous and can lead to resentment towards the child from both parents, especially if one feels trapped or the relationship starts to go south. This is important because this week we're going to be looking at the case of former state representative Justin Harris and his adoptive daughters, which started with three girls desperately in need of a safe home and ended with anything but that. 
When we think of adoption, we think of the promise of a forever home. The idea that they will no longer be bouncing from foster home to foster home anymore. But what happens when a child is more than you're prepared to deal with? This is exactly what Justin Harris claims happened. In March of 2011, the Hart family, who had taken in over 70 children in a 15-year time span, received a phone call from the Arkansas Department of Human Services, or DHS, asking if they would take in a nine-month-old baby girl. And about a month later, the infant's two-year-old sister was also placed with the couple. While the hearts were aware the sisters had come from a troubled and sexually abusive background, the couple didn't notice any extremely alarming behaviors from the girl during the year and a half they spent in their home in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The hearts did know the two little girls had a five and a half year old sister who had been severely sexually abused. Sometimes this girl acted out violently and DHS had placed her in a special home with people who were trained to deal with her special needs. At this time, Justin and Marcia Harris had been approached by the girl's biological mother to adopt them. The Harrises were looking to expand their family of three young sons and cement their place within the community. The Harrises felt that this was meant to be. They wanted to expand their family, and lo and behold, they were approached by a mother in desperate need of a safe, stable place for her daughters who are about to be permanently taken away by DHS. The family decided they wanted to make these girls members of their family. Later that year, the couple contacted DHS about their intentions. Justin Harris also reached out to the Hart family who was fostering the two youngest girls at the time. The Hearts were absolutely opposed to the Harris adoption from the beginning. The Hearts said they were not the only ones. For reasons similar to their own, the Hearts said that the DHS therapists, caseworkers, adoption specialists, and former foster parents all warned that this would not be a good fit. Jan Wallace, a former adoption specialist with DHS, knew the two younger sisters. She had been assigned their case while the girls were still living with the Hearts. Wallace stayed on the case as the girls were transitioned to the Harrises. Eventually, she testified in court against the Harris adoption. This was not the type of home we are looking for. It is not appropriate for these girls to be in a home with three boys, Wallace stated. But the Harrises explained that they are both early childhood educators ran and operated a preschool and had experience working in a therapeutic daycare setting. They argued they were more than capable of raising the young girls. Furthermore, Marcia Harris had been abused in the past and she felt that would help her deal with the two older girls' special needs. The Harrises are devout Southern Baptists and to this day claim that the objections to the adoption were because people believed they were religious fanatics. In summer 2012, despite the objections and testimony against it, a judge approved the triple adoption. The oldest daughter was to be placed for a six-month trial period in the Harris home in June, and the other sisters would be transitioned to the home permanently in September, but they would still have a six-month trial period. 
Shortly after the oldest girl arrived, the Harrises said she began to display disturbing behavior. She lashed out at her brothers, threatened to kill people, and crushed the family guinea pig. Describing her fits of rage, Marcia Harris said in an interview, it never stopped, just screaming. There were no tears, just rage, screaming, non-stop. This is what I had to deal with, eight to 12 hours a day. Now the Harrises learned that the girl's behavior was related to a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder, a psychological condition that develops when a child's basic needs for comfort and affection are not met in early development. After just four months in the Harris home, the oldest girl was placed in an inpatient facility and her adoption by the Harrises was never finalized. However, in April 2013, the Harrises finalized the adoption of the two younger sisters, meaning they completed the six month trial period. But shortly after this, things took a turn for the worse, as the middle child, who also had reactive attachment disorder, began to act out even though she was attending regular therapy. Chelsea Goldsboro was a high school senior when she started babysitting for the Harrises in the spring of 2013. Goldsboro alleged that the family would keep the middle child isolated in her bedroom for long periods of time and that they would blast Christian music at her door to keep away demons. The babysitter also alleged that they would keep the girls separated because they were afraid they could telepathically speak to another. She is quoted as saying, there was a group coming in from Alabama that was supposed to pray over the children and get the demons out. It was like an exorcism. Now, the Harrises categorically deny this. But think about it for a moment. You are an abused child who is afraid and acting out for reasons you are too young to understand and you are being locked in your room and having music blasted at you and strangers brought in to pray over you. The Harris's response was that, quote, we are Southern Baptists. We do not do exorcisms, end quote. However, Janice, Jan Wallace, who was their adoption specialist, she had left DHS in 2012 but was surprised to receive a call from Marsha Harris. Despite the reservations she had had about the adoption, she thought things were fine. So she was shocked when Harris called her desperately asking to meet for dinner. According to Wallace, Harris told her they could no longer handle the girls and needed to give them back and that they had brought ministers into their house to get the demons out of the two little girls. Wallace warned the Harrises that there was a possibility that DHS could charge them with abandonment if they took such an action since the adoption had been finalized. So just a few months later, Wallace was horrified to find out that the Harrises had rehomed the girls. Feeling they had run out of options, the Harrises chose to take matters into their own hands near the end of 2013. Marsha Harris was friends with a woman named Stacy Francis, and Justin Harris believed 
that Frances and her husband Eric would be a perfect solution to their problem. Now before we go any further, let me explain exactly what rehoming is. It's a legal loophole that allows adoptive parents to hand over kids to another willing family. Rehoming describes when adoptive parents find a new home for their adoptive child without notifying or consulting the proper authorities. It is a term commonly used by animal shelters and pet owners to advertise a cat or dog up for adoption. Those in the adoption profession refer to this as adopting from disruption. Now, no money is exchanged between the adoptive parents. Rehoming is still an underground network used to obtain children illegally and without their consent, which makes this a form of human trafficking. Now, technically, rehoming an adoptive child is legal in most states. Much like if a parent of a biological child couldn't take care of them, they would legally grant guardianship to another family. Child Protective Services only steps in if they suspect mistreatment of the child. Now, if the child is foreign born, the state doesn't follow up with visits and most countries do not perform follow-up with families in the case of international adoptions. The majority of rehoming children is done over the internet on websites like Yahoo Groups and Facebook. And much like rehoming a pet, the parents will post a photo and information about the child and prospective parents will respond to them via message. Wisconsin became the first state to ban the private transfer of adopted children. The Wisconsin law makes it illegal for anyone not licensed by the state to advertise a child over the age of one for adoption or any other custody transfers, both in print or online. Parents who wish to transfer custody of a child to someone other than a relative must seek permission from a judge with violators facing up to nine months in jail or $10,000 in fine. I personally don't find this to be harsh enough. Now, other states have followed in the steps of Wisconsin, Colorado, Florida, Louisiana, and Arkansas, ironically, have enacted their own laws against child rehoming. Many of you may think this can't be that big of a problem. It's not all over the news. I've never heard of it. However, Rutgers analyzed messages advertising 261 children on one Yahoo group and found that children were offered for rehoming at a rate of one a week. About 70% of the children offered were products of international adoption and were between the ages of 6 and 13. Here are a sample of some of the ads for rehomed children that they found. Born in October 2000, this handsome boy Rick was placed from India a year ago and is obedient and also eager to please. I had wanted to go back for another daughter from China, but this one is so difficult and so hard to love that I can tell you with absolute certainty I will never do it again. She is very small for her age, somewhat immature. I mean, her interests are more like those of an eight or nine year old, 
you know, crafts, animals, etc. And she's behind on her schooling, but mainly that's because of her victim mentality. Schoolwork is hard, boo hoo hoo. But on the plus side, she's very sweet, quiet, and extremely obedient. Now that last one infuriated me. The complete and total lack of empathy and understanding for a child was just outrageous. The fact that there is no thought to the possibility that the child could have a learning disability, just the callousness that this ad was printed with is just unimaginable and unforgivable to me. And yes, I really do hope that there is a special place in hell for this person because this is just disgusting. Now, that you understand the truth of rehoming and the practice and culture that is behind it, let's get back to the case of the Harrises. The Harrises gave the two younger girls to Eric and Stacy Francis with the intention that the Francises would eventually adopt them. In October 2013, Justin Harris dropped off his two youngest daughters to begin their new life with the Francises. The couple, who the Harrises had known since Marsha and Cece had been classmates in college, they seemed like a perfect fit. They had three internationally adopted children of their home, one who had reactive attachment disorder. And Eric Francis was also an early childhood educator. Yeah, he was an early childhood educator and the fact that he worked for Growing God's Kingdom, the Christian daycare that was owned by the Harrises. But by January 2014, Francis was fired by the Harrises for failing to show up to work consistently. Now, imagine that. These people gave their children to a man who could not be bothered to show up to work. Now, in the course of that same month, one day while Stacy was out of town, Eric Francis did the unthinkable. He started molesting the now six-year-old middle child. And only months later, the Francises transferred the girls to yet another family in an effort to cover up Eric's terrible crime. Once again, stop and think about this. These girls were promised a forever home when they were adopted. And instead, they were pawned off, not once, but twice to other families. It is just disgusting to me that these poor girls were passed around like it was nothing. Now, the police only learned Eric Francis had molested the child because of an anonymous tip they received in March of 2015. This tip came around the same time that the Arkansas Times broke the story of State Representative Harris rehoming. The Harris then called a press conference and blamed DHS for failing to provide adequate support to his family. He also said the girls, who were then three and five, were dangerously violent and posed a threat to his biological children. He also claimed that he and his wife never wanted the oldest girls, but were forced by DHS to take her. Once again, total lack of empathy or care for the children's feelings. The fact that this man went on television and told everyone 
He never wanted a child he took into their home with no regard for the fact that this girl was eventually going to see and hear that is completely disgusting. Now, other people who are acquainted with the girls, including their current adoptive family, fiercely reject these claims. While again, after the press conference, people who are familiar with the case came forward and claimed that Harris used his influence as a legislator to pressure the Department of Human Services to proceed with the adoption over the objections of caseworkers and others that said that the Harris's were just not suited to take care of these children. Harris had a powerful position on the legislative committee, which controlled the financing to DHS. And it was never looked into as a possibility as to why the department had advocated on his behalf. And remember, the adoption specialist, Jan Willis, testified against the adoption at the hearing. Now, in November of that year, Francis pled guilty to sexual abuse charges and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Harris eventually resigned his position as a state representative. But in the meantime, the Harrises continued to run their preschool, but not without issue. Harris continued to hire questionable employees to care for the young children at the school. A school bus driver failed to notice that a child had remained on the bus after drop-off. Child was not discovered till early that afternoon. Luckily for the child, the temperature was not too hot, not too cold, and the van was parked in the shade. The child did not suffer any injuries. However, the driver was prosecuted by the police and the Harrises fired him immediately upon discovery and never accepted responsibility for the incident even though that the school did not abide by its own protocols in taking attendance at the beginning of the day, which would have discovered that the child was missing. Additionally, word came out that a male employee was fired in December of 2015 for inappropriate contact with the student. Now this has raised questions in the community about the Harris's lack of proper screening procedures and possibly even their own lack of judgment. The girls, on the other hand, have a much happier ending. As I said earlier, the girls have a new adoptive home and the mother wanted everyone to know that the girls are amazing, fun, sweet, sensitive, and strong. They're courageous and they're fighters. And even the oldest sister, who was deemed unreachable at one point, was able to be adopted by a new family who was specially suited to meet her needs. She's thriving and doing well. That's it for this week's edition of Cypher Crime. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you join us two weeks time when we discuss the case of the first female convicted of forcible rape of a man in Britain. In the meantime, if you like what you heard, give us five stars on any um, platform that you listen to us on, stop by the Patreon page, throw us some change, and I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.